This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting to hold politicians accountable for better health care. Find out more at carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. How to save Canada's Conservative Party? The question is tougher than ever after the disqualification of Patrick Brown rocked the leadership race. I talked to activist Tasha Carradin. And a stunning success story. A new tally finds that COVID vaccines saved 20 million lives. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Residents of Shanghai were ordered to undergo two new rounds of mass PCR testing this week. The city government said all residents in 10 of the city's 16 districts would be tested twice and required to show a test taken within the last two days to leave their homes. This after authorities found 54 new cases linked to a karaoke lounge. Meanwhile, Beijing is set to launch China's first ever vaccine mandate next week, limiting entry to a raft of entertainment and cultural venues to inoculated people and requiring booster shots for several industries, including medical workers. Do you get hangry? A new study finds getting mad when you're hungry is not just an urban myth used in junk food ads. Psychologists at Anglia Ruskin University recruited 64 adults to record their emotions and feelings of hunger five times a day for three weeks. It was one of the first studies to look at how hunger affects emotion, and the conclusion is that yes, being hangry is a real thing. Buckingham Palace is officially cutting back on the Queen's workload in a rewrite of her duties as head of state and head of nation. The adjustments, which were revealed in the annual report of the monarchy, acknowledge the mobility issues that have seen the 96-year-old monarch scale back public appearances and pull out of several official engagements recently. Among key changes is the removal of a 13-point list of mandatory duties, including the state opening of Parliament. Is Bhutan on your bucket list? The tiny Buddhist kingdom is famous for measuring prosperity with a happiness index as well as for limiting tourism. Now it will triple fees with a tax of $200 a day on international visitors when it reopens this fall. This in addition to the cost of accommodations, meals, and tours, which used to be included in a package fee. This comes as Venice and other European destinations explore permit systems and daily fees to limit the number of tourists. Randy Bachman has finally brought home the beloved 1957 Gresh guitar that he used to record hit after hit until it was stolen 45 years ago. Business, business, 
After decades of searching, an internet sleuth located the guitar in the hands of a Japanese musician in Tokyo named Takeshi. They made plans to return the guitar to Bachman at the Canadian Embassy in Tokyo, and that happened as they marked Canada Day. Now that it's home, Bachman says the iconic instrument will never leave his house. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. Conservative activist Tasha Carradine went to Calgary during the stampede to launch her book, which offers a prescription on how to unite the deeply divided party. But the disqualification of Patrick Brown has overshadowed all aspects of the leadership race and thrown the fundamental questions into high relief. Will the Conservative Party of Canada choose populism or the moderate centre? Will Canadians accept it as a viable alternative to the Liberals? I reached Tasha Carradine in Calgary. Tasha Carradine, big developments this week. You're trying to have a conversation about where does the party go forward? What is the soul of the party? And then we have this disqualification of Patrick Brown. What does that do to things? Well, it uh, throws a spanner into the works uh, in a major way. It's unsettled a lot of people within the party um, because it's never happened before. And uh, initially, there were very few details that had come out about why this was done. The fact it was done by the LEOC, which is the Leadership uh, Elections Committee, it means that it's, you know, they, they, they are the ones charged with overseeing the election, but at the same time, they haven't been exactly transparent, or they hadn't been until today. They've been releasing more and more details, but some of them have actually even been leaked. We now know that a whistleblower, Deb Jodoin, was the person who complained about this from the Patrick Brown campaign, but initially people weren't told, you know, where, where this complaint came from, what it was about. Uh, but we do know that now, and the party even has issued now a statement, a further statement, saying that they had contacted the Brown campaign several times and were unsatisfied with the answers they got, and they had to make this difficult decision and refer it to Elections Canada. So all this has really unsettled a lot of people because this leadership race is so crucial to the party. You know, going forward, um, the party has to be accountable. It has to, to look like it's got its act together. And right now, it looks like one very dysfunctional family. So it's going to be, we still have two months to go, but um, it's going to be something that has to be worked on in terms of the accountability piece in, in all this. Judging by what we know so far, it looks like the issue is who paid campaign expenses less than $10,000 for this woman. The Brown campaign says they were going to pay the private company back. Is that a reason to disqualify him from the race? <laughs> well, uh, this is the million-dollar question. And my, my concern here, and I, I put a lawyer hat on for a second, is that since this has to go now to Elections Canada, what if Elections Canada comes back and says there's nothing to see here? would Mr. Brown be reinstated? And what do you do at that point? Um, because you've damaged his candidacy, probably beyond repair. It is, it's one of those things that once you cross that Rubicon and, and disqualify someone, it, you can't bring them back. He's still on the ballot, we understand, similar to Kevin O'Leary when he left, but he left for completely different reasons. It was voluntary. So, uh, you know, theoretically, people can still vote for him. The question is, will those votes count um, if he's disqualified? Uh, if Elections Canada comes back and says, He's okay, it's okay, nothing to see. Then is he back on the ballot? Would those votes go to him? It's 
it's it's a bit of a mess, Libby. It really is. You know, if I had if I were on the LEOC, personally I'm not, but I, I would think they probably should have gone to Elections Canada before to get a decision. I don't know how fast those are rendered, but before um before going forward with, with disqualification. Um because now they, they risk having that come back and Mr. Brown has also retained lawyers. So, you know, for for all the campaigns and I you know I'm on one of them with Josh Ray's campaign, it creates a level of uncertainty. I mean, all of us are just plowing ahead and continuing to connect with members and things are going extremely well in that regard. They were going well before, but a lot of members, our only concern really is for the members that were signed up by Mr. Brown that, you know, they don't get discouraged and say, this party doesn't respect us. You know, they don't respect our candidate. That is that is a danger. And so I think the party has to, again, really be transparent and, and hopefully be correct in its decision here, because if it's not correct in its decision, it's going to be a lot to account for. Again, that is the question. Why didn't they wait? But I guess they thought if, if it came even later in the campaign, it would be more damaging. Could well, it people be? will start to vote. This is the issue. Some ballots have already apparently been mailed out. They have Mr. Brown's name on them. People will start returning those. Um, it's a Herculean process to get 675,000 people to vote and get those ballots counted. So I expect perhaps that was the reason, to your point, that they did, they acted quickly. But at the same time, if this decision is reversed or would be reversed by Elections Canada, by their decision, then we have an even more serious problem on our hands. Is this comparable to just having someone who works at a private company seconded to a campaign? Well, that's not, you're not allowed to do that. Companies know that that stuff is tracked and that you're, it's not allowed. So, you know, in this day and age, you don't do that anymore. It used to be, it used to be the thing. People did, but you could also have companies giving money before. You can't do that. It has to be individuals. It has no corporate donations are allowed. So, again, that, that the game has changed and people have to, to recognize that. Where do you go from here? And, and the reaction of the people that you refer to as convoy conservative supporters of Pierre Poilievre? Well, um, you know, a lot of people, there, there's a lot of rumors flying around as to, you know, was this some kind of setup or something like that? Um, we don't know any details around that. Nobody knows. But the, the rumor mill is a bad thing to have going on. And, you know, there, there's, there's many people who say, well, who benefits from this? Is it Pierre Polyev? And that's maybe where this came from and so on and so on. But there's no proof of that. It's really, I think, a lot of the people who, as I describe as convoy conservatives, who would be supporting Pierre, uh, who support the aims and goals of the convoy, you know, they have, they see Mr. Polyev as pretty much their champion in this race. I think one of the, one of the issues I address in the book is how to reconcile the um, grievances they have with the fact that other people don't share the, the means. They, they may, they may understand the aims that, that folks had going in the convoy, but they did not respect, they don't, they don't respect the means. They don't like the means. They think they are destructive and they are aligned with all sorts of other elements that are, you know, unsavory and, um, in some cases racist and, and, uh, you know, Trumpian and all sorts of things we don't want in this country. So it's going to be hard to reconcile the groups, like I described, convoy conservatives, club conservatives, and the common sense Canadians who are stuck in between looking at this internecine battle that's going on uh, within the Conservative Party that, you know, may turn off voters come election time. So it, it is really, right now, a very difficult, fraught time for the party, and that's why this race really demands leadership and someone who can unify. You know, it's no secret I'm supporting Mr. Charest, and the reason for that is because I believe he is the best person to unify the party in the country. That said, my book is not about who should lead the party. It's about who should lead the country, how we should lead the country, really, how the party should do that. So it's more about philosophy. But I, I to your point, I think getting people to, to find some common ground is going to be hard, but it has to be done or the party's going to split apart. Tasha Karen, and thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure, Libby. Thank you. 
That was Tasha Carradine. You can find her book at therightpathbook.com. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, a staggering number of lives saved. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, fighting for financial security for our seniors. Find out more at carp.ca. It's a stunning, life-saving achievement. A study published in The Lancet Infectious Disease estimates that COVID-19 vaccines helped reduce the global death toll by 63% during the first year they became available. That adds up to 20 million lives saved. I reached Dr. Oliver Watson at Imperial College London. 20 million lives saved. That's a staggering number. Were you surprised? I was shocked at just how high it was. I knew it was going to be a large number, but I did not think it would be as large as that. And and it just speaks really to the remarkable impact that vaccination has had on the COVID-19 pandemic worldwide. How did you arrive at that number? To arrive at that estimate, we first needed to come up with an alternate reality for what would have happened if there were no vaccines available. And so to do that, we assumed that the pandemic played out exactly as it has in each country. So the same level of interventions, masking, lockdowns, etc. But simply that we took away vaccines. And that then gives us a, uh, this alternate reality of a much larger pandemic. And we can then compare that to what has actually happened look at the difference, and that's how we arrive at that estimate. Now, the number that I have for the actual number of deaths is from our world in data, it's uh, 6.34 million. Do you agree with that number? So that number is the officially reported uh, number of COVID deaths. So that's an underestimate of the true global number. Um, And the reason for that is because a number of COVID-19 deaths do not get detected across the world. Um, Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, we knew that deaths uh, occur unregistered as well as medically uncertified, so not knowing what the cause of death was. And so efforts to use excess mortality, uh, which is the difference between mortality in this year in comparison to previous years, have been relied on to really show the true toll of the uh, pandemic. I'd like to drill down on the data in some specific countries. So you're saying uh, the estimate is that it prevented more than 4 million deaths in in India, 1.9 million in the United States, 507,000 in the United Kingdom. So did you use the same method to drill down on those country numbers? We used two different uh, sources of data for producing those estimates. So one is based on excess mortality that I talked about, and one is based on the official reported deaths. And so those very large numbers that you talked about in in India and the US are based on excess mortality. Um, So for somewhere like the United States, where estimates of excess mortality are similar to reported COVID-19 deaths, those two estimates are going to be similar. But for somewhere like India, where there is a significant difference between the reported number of COVID deaths and 
the excess mortality during the pandemic, we'll see a much bigger difference between the number of deaths that we believe vaccines have prevented. So for Canada, based on excess mortality, we have over 310,000 deaths estimated to have been prevented by vaccines. And then if we look at it based on official COVID-19 reported deaths, um, we have a, you know, a very similar number because the reporting is good in Canada and it gets similarly 310,000 deaths prevented. We had a total of 42,000 deaths in Canada. We have a very high rate of vaccination. So were we doing better or the same or worse than other countries in your estimation? Canada performs comparably to other high-income countries that were able to procure and distribute vaccines quickly prior to relaxing non-pharmaceutical interventions and lockdowns. So really ensuring that it had that high level of protection afforded by vaccines before allowing transmission to increase. But Canada was very slow to receive vaccines well behind other wealthy countries. What was the impact of that? It will have had a small impact, but when I'm talking about Canada performing well, this is a you know, sort of on a uh, you know, across many different countries who also had delays in their uh, vaccine procurement. Um, if we just as a comparison to the UK, which had one of the you know, the earliest vaccine rollouts, you know, having vaccinated the first person globally, uh, they ended up with a very similar number of deaths averted for the amount of vaccines given out, and so. I would say that Canada's performed very well in its vaccination campaign. There's another side to the story when it comes to low-income countries. You say another 600,000 deaths could have been averted if we did a better job of getting them vaccinated. If that target that the World Health Organization set out had been achieved, uh, we actually estimate that one in five of the lives lost due to COVID-19 in low-income countries could have been prevented. Dr. Oliver Watson, thank you so much. Thank you very much. That was Dr. Oliver Watson. His study found COVID-19 vaccines saved 20 million lives in the first year they were available. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. Zoomer Week in Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer, Justin Eacock. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.